This is Jeff Cronoweth, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How's it going with you? It's going just ducky. Hey, have you been on Assemble.tv lately? I have not been on Assemble.tv in the last week. Why, why do you ask? I'm just curious because, you know, uh, anyone who's listening to the sound of my voice who'd like to try Assemble.tv, you can use the promo code CINEPOD and get a month free. Definitely check it out. If I had a project that was starting pre-production, you bet your ass I would be on Assemble.tv. But alas, I'm on two projects that are in post-production and I was not in a position to enforce what pre-production methods we were using on either one of those. Well, next time. Hey, uh, who's on the show today? We are very, very stoked to bring back Jeff Cronenweth, the cinematographer of Being the Ricardos, the new movie about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, written and directed by the amazing Aaron Sorkin. We are now three for three. We, We have interviewed the cinematographers of all three of Aaron Sorkin's directorial features. Molly's Game, shot by Shalotta Bruce Christensen. The Trial of the Chicago 7, shot by Faden Papa Michael. Yeah. And Faden, who I believe is our most guest, I think he's been on more than anyone else, except for well, maybe Checo Varese. Maybe Checo. Checo's, they're, they're neck and neck, I think. Yeah. But uh, always great to talk to Jeff Cronenweth. Beautiful, beautiful looking movie. And it's, it's interesting because, and he gets into this, like he and Aaron Sorkin uh, didn't work together, obviously, because it was David Fincher's movie, but he shot The Social Network, which was mm. written by Aaron Sorkin. And so he's kind of known Aaron Sorkin this whole time. And, and uh, I just want to say his respect for Aaron Sorkin was effusive. He definitely loves working with the man and his amazing scripts. And his scripts make some really fine movies, too. They really do. But we wanted to get into our close focus this week. And our close focus... We've been trying to avoid talking about COVID-19 very much, but there's a We've done a, weird... a good job, too. We've done yeah, pretty I th- well. Yeah, I think so. And we're not actually talking about the disease COVID-19 this week. We no. want to talk about people who are getting fired because they refuse to get vaccinated. To which I respond, hey, dingus, get vaccinated. But, you know, yeah. like Miles Teller notably shut down. There's like a making of the Godfather movie project in the works and he got COVID and he wouldn't get vaccinated and uh, it shut down production and Emilio Estevez was let go from Disney plus on the next season of the mighty ducks. And, you know, Emilio Estevez hadn't really been in anything in a long time or anything that was that high profile. And I'm just, I was extraordinarily surprised that the lead actor of repo man, one of my favorite movies wouldn't get vaccinated and meant it enough that it cost him a job. Like to me, that was crazy. And then you brought up that uh, one of the actors yeah. from General Hospital. Two of them, right? actually. Yeah. And f- including Steve Burton, who I, I'm not a General Hospital person, but has been there for 29 years. So, wow. Uh, so seniority did not matter in this. They have a strict ma- vaccine mandate. They said everyone had to be vaccinated, I think, by November 1st. And uh, a couple members of the cast refused. And so General Hospital said, you're replaceable. And away they went. So, and recently, was- Ice Cube. Uh, basically passed on a a role in a movie. I mean, like he wasn't fired, but he passed on the role because it required him to get vaccinated and he's not going to get vaccinated. And I got to say that there's a lot of weird vaccine misinformation traveling around out there, but a lot of the vaccine misinformation kind of deals with the vaccine being dangerous. And now that a few billion people have had the vaccine and, you know, we don't have uh, streets lined with the dead uh, vaccinated, I feel like we can safely say that there isn't a massive conspiracy to cover up that the vaccines are dangerous. The vaccines seem pretty safe. You know what is crazy, though? You know what the vaccine has done is given me incredible 5G reception with my cell phone. That's true. It's like, it's so good now. Also, I know that I can just communicate directly with Bill Gates by speaking out loud or even thinking. 
telepathically you can yeah. you can speak with bill gates bill gates is he's right there anyway no, no, i mean well but it, it is shocking and also well i mean yet another celebrity uh famously Nicki minaj tweeted oh. something out about like her cousin having a oh, problem yeah, with the vaccine that was a few months ago yeah her yeah, cousin's yeah, it, friend or yes yeah yeah it was a pretty sketchy connection of like uh yeah i think i heard a rumor that a guy with a thing but the thing is that these people have massive social media presences and when they say stuff like that, it just blows up and it causes people to choose not to get vaccinated because Nicki Minaj said something about her cousin's friend offhandedly on Twitter. And I don't know if she, how much harm she meant, but I feel like it then also kind of forces her to get into a camp of being one of these anti-vax people. And it's you know, a little uh, it's a little gross. There's a lot of money Disney's got wrapped up in the new Black Panther film. And Letitia Wright has uh, stated she is not getting vaccinated and they haven't fired her yet. But I guess she posted a hour long interview on YouTube with some guy who was espousing a whole bunch of highly controversial things, including questioning the safety of vaccines even though he admits that he's mm. not a medical expert in any way and then also making like transphobic comments and a whole oh, bunch of other okay. stuff well, so, so and then denying yeah. cl climate change so it's like oh, okay because did he get, did he get into you. flat earth did he did he talk about how the earth is flat <laughs> i didn't Please. i didn't no. supposedly uh. the video has now been deleted and i think also that there's a twitter account that she's associated with has been deleted now or something so it's it's interesting really how many I mean, people if you're out disney there. and letitia Wright, you could afford to have like the highest end pcr test you know in turn around fast turnaround test you, if she really refused to do it you could have a medical person whose only job was to just test her for covid and you could get her to be in a bubble maybe and you know you could probably be relatively safe about it um, they, they might do that because i mean she's really one of the leads of that movie if not the lead so well I mean, since really... they don't have chadwick boseman then yeah. you know you know i mean it's just frustrating because i just feel like these are generally very smart people and I don't understand why they won't listen to reason or even empirical proof that the vaccine isn't hurting really anyone and, and any more the, any more than any other vaccine. There's there's quite a few options too right now. So anyway, so uh, so <laughs> get the vaccine. Like stop being an idiot. Get the vaccine, and we can all get back to work. If everyone in America who is eligible got the vaccine tomorrow, two weeks from now, we could be sort of back to normal. The reasons we have so many variants is very much from people not getting vaccinated. They, they you know, those variants are, well, are. And in certain cases, like like countries, you know, like the Delta variant, which came out of India, they didn't have the vaccine at the time, or they think it came out of India, and and the uh, Omicron, Omicron variant. variant. I hope Ben put some uh, reverb on that. Uh, that's out of South Africa where it, it turns um, out, though, that there's actually some dispute about that now. They think the Omicron variant actually originated perhaps in Europe, but they think that it's spreading very quickly in South Africa. And of course, South Africa has incredible laboratory services where they are constantly sequencing viruses because HIV has been such a problem there. So, yeah. uh, but you know, South Africa is not quibbling about really where it, where it came from, but they're saying, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real problem here. It's like, it's now the, you know, the dominant variant. So, but regardless, if everyone did get vaccinated and if the industrialized world wasn't so concerned about profits and patents, uh, we could have already I would say, think knock this thing out by now, but yeah, there's the powers that be don't necessarily want to make it uh, free for everybody. So there's a there's a whole thing. But moreover, actors, yeah. crew people, directors, yeah, get vaccinated. Just do it, please do it. We want our industry <laughs> to keep moving. Not just our industry. It'd be really nice if just you know we could go back to an a more or less normal state of being and normal i, I just i would love it if going to a restaurant didn't feel like playing russian roulette quite as much as it does at the moment <laughs> it's uh, i was in orange county today let me tell you it's, oh, it's, boy. A, it's a different world so anyway oh. uh ben let's get to the interview with jeff cronenworth here we go the cinematography podcast interview so we are here with one of our returning champions, Jeff Cronenwith. Uh, we, we could not be more excited to have you back. Ilya uh, gave me, usually he shuts me down when I want to talk about the same movie forever. And he was like, talk about Fight Club all you want. But we are here to talk about your new movie, Being the Ricardos, uh, which is an Aaron Sorkin written and directed uh, thing, movie. <laughs> and it's absolutely beautiful. And firstly, just thank you so much for coming back on. Your work is, is amazing and inspiring to us. But I, uh, I, I had read or heard that this was not the first time you had worked with 
Aaron Sorkin, his director, that you had done an insert shot or something with him on uh, the social network. Yeah, well, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure to be here. Of course. Yeah, the last shot of Social Network. It was quite a, an eventful movie, and uh, it was a very tight crew. And I get the feeling that Fincher didn't want to go through the normal nostalgic goodbyes and uh, handed the last shot of the film to Aaron, which was an insert of the acceptance letter to Andrew Garfield being accepted into one of the social clubs. And so Aaron directed that, and I photographed it. And so that was our first director DP collaboration back uh, some 10 years ago. So, As far as I know, that's Aaron Sorkin's first director DP collaboration period because he had... It could I, be. I, like, I didn't, I didn't do the research and I actually meant to ask him and never did if he ever did any directing on uh, West Wing or any of those shows or if he was always just the showrunner uh, watching other people. He has, I mean, I can't speak to whether or not he uh, nailed any uh, insert shots or anything like that, but uh, when we had Shalada Bruce Christensen on, she had just shot Molly's Game, and that was the first thing, that was his first directing credit, was Molly's Game, which I found shocking because, you know, he's run so many TV series and created so much, like, landmark, noteworthy television that it was just shocking to me he hadn't directed a single episode. But, uh, you know, and this is his third movie, and it's like, you know, they're all kind of prestige Oscar caliber movies and just moving up so i think it's a statement to him how and this certainly was the case for me when i read the script uh being the ricardos it's such a tight structured script and he's answered so many questions in it it's so well thought out yeah Uh, of course the dialogue is brilliant and the storyline is brilliant but it's like a complete picture and you get to look at it and then you get to break it apart and it becomes oddly enough it it allows you to be super creative and a lot more freedom because you know what the basic structure is and you can't go wrong with the way that he's kind of um built it and so now you can really venture out and bring a lot back you know to it visually through set design through coverage through wardrobe hair and makeup it really it liberates you it's 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 a weird thing where you would think structure would be suffocating but in this mm-hmm. case it it's such a great guide that it allows you to kind of just bloom afterwards with with ideas and that's something that i give him a lot of credit for because he hires very you can be the judge about me but he hires very talented (laughs) people around him and then utilizes them to bring more to the picture as he keeps evolving as a director you know and he's very he's like a sponge and soaks it all up and uh wants all of us to push him out of what might be comfortable areas and mm. open his eyes to new things. And so that was a, like the, the beginning of a, what became a really wonderful process. So when you were shooting The Social Network, however many years ago that was, did you talk to him a lot? Did you establish a relationship with him back then? Or Yeah, we were, you... we were friends. He was on the set quite a bit. Mm. You know, it was very like social friends, but just acquaintances and jokes and talking about shots and scenes. He wasn't there all the time, but it was the first time that I had seen David work so closely with someone that has written the script. And uh, I think Aaron was part of all the rehearsals and there a lot for the scenes that had a lot of weight to him. And I think it was because his style and tempo and pace and the fact that people speak over one another is, is not necessarily, he's not the only one that does it, but it's certainly, it's part of his arsenal that we're so familiar with. And I think Fincher wanted all that input to do it. And the way that David directed that film and the way that uh, he kept the tempo and pace through shot choices and through cuts, it's an amazing experience. Like every time I see that movie, I look at my watch, I can't believe it's over already because it feels like it just started, you know? And so that's a tribute to both of them, but it certainly comes from, it starts with Aaron's style of writing. Well, and, and so having shot two movies that he wrote, what can you say about the visual compliment or how visually you approach something uh, that has such a structure and such a style to the writing? Like you can hear half a conversation in an Aaron Sorkin piece and know that it's his writing. Is there a visual compliment that you found that maybe you carried from one to the other or, or are you just looking at each piece as its own completely separate piece? 
I think the structure's there and you know you're going to have a, a, a pace of dialogue and actors mm-hmm. are going to kind of interact with each other quite a bit in dialogue and stepping on one another. But no, I think each one is its own beast that you have to figure out how to accomplish. You know, this one is 1952s and that era dictates a certain style yeah. uh, and you want to stay within that structure of a 52 but add modern choices and kind of techniques without getting out of the you know too too crazy you have to approach things slightly different you know chicago seven was radically different than this movie you know this movie has romance good and bad if you will you know and it, and it's this emotional roller coaster where their angst was against a wrong that they wanted to write uh, this is a bunch of wrongs and a bunch of rights and a bunch of people that are trying to negotiate and navigate through each one of these crises that they're opposed to in a period piece. And so it's a little bit different. And the story, and it, it has different weights to it. And, you know, we talked at the very beginning about my philosophy for it uh, when I was pitching him was that I think that the, these characters, we have to always know where they are. We have to, it's so imperative that the set, I love Lucy's set, the stage, the writer's rooms are all characters because it, it has so much to do with what they're talking about and what, and what she ultimately creates to have a home that doesn't actually serve as the home that she hoped it would. So I proposed this idea of having as much contrast as you want and having light and dark throughout the balancing throughout the movie. But rather than being dark for dark, which tends to be the trend nowadays, everyone seems to think that they can who, who can shoot the darkest movie wins, but <laughs> I'm not sure that serves all the stories properly. And so what I wanted to do was have richness and darkness, of course, but have depth to all the scenes. Lightwise depth. I wanted to have points of light. I wanted to see the back of the set walls on the I Love Lucy stage. I wanted to always see the depth of places so that you have contextual awareness of where they are and what's happening. But then I shot with a 8K camera and 70 mil glass and wide open so that there was a very minimum amount of focus. And that's the place that I isolated these characters and let them find themselves vulnerable and alone but still within this world that's happening around them because each one of them never kind of got out of that space. So I thought that would be a cool, broad stroke approach to it. You know, of course, every scene wants to be what it is, but in general, that was kind of a rule and he thought that was a, a great approach to it. And so that's kind of was our theme to it. And when I think about the movie, some of the striking stuff had almost a noir feeling, mm-hmm. like a lo- like a hard backlight coming in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a conscious choice on your part. Where did the idea for kind of that? I mean, it's it's glamorous, it's mysterious, it sets a period. But like, what was your thinking in, in terms of uh, that creative choice? Well, I tell you that there's four looks in this movie, if you will. There's 1952 when the, when this week is happening, which is the general palette of the entire movie. There's contemporary interviews by our narrators that takes place in the mid-90s, let's say. And that's pretty contemporary, and and they're talking through, and we've just seen where they've evolved to as the writers of the show and where they are in their lives now. And then there's the 1940s, which is the flashbacks to when they first met and when Lucy was still acting and when she did her radio show. And then there's the black-and-white footage, which is... The closest we get to seeing what the I Love Lucy show was really was, but it really is all in her head, and it's it's her imagining the scenes when she's trying to overcome comedic challenges and then resolving them. And so we pay homage to the actual TV show, but we never really show the show as a show. So the thing that I hope that you're talking about is in the flashbacks in the 40s, rather than kind of construct something that would really tell you that you're going back in time, I embrace what the 40s starlight, hard light. Uh, my grandfather was a portrait photographer for Columbia Studios. He won the last Oscar they gave out for portrait photography. You know, they used to, unlike today, where they can shoot parallel with us, they had their own stages. They had to direct the talent. They had to direct their, uh, they had to design their own sets. And that was the sole source of publicity for a movie back then. So he and Harrell and a lot of the photographers of that era had this great, very dramatic, very theatrical style of lighting, especially women. I, I coined it. I mean, maybe I didn't coin it, but it, I, I say it's fashion noir, you know, yeah. because it's <laughs> kind of like hard light 
isolated spots. And it just seemed like a great way to define the flashbacks and to do something fun and, and something that is, is appropriate for the era that they would have been doing that in. And so we did that with all the kind of uh, when they were younger and uh, when it was appropriate, you know. And then the black and white stuff, it's a funny thing because we have a lot of liberty there because it's not real. It's only in her imagination, right? But at the same time, you want to reflect what everybody so badly wants is the scenes that we're all so familiar with uh, that we've all watched as kids growing up and, and saw. And so you have to make a choice. You know, they shot that show a cameraman named Carl Freund, who was a feature guy who won an Oscar in 1937, came in as a technical wizard to kind of solve some problems. You know, the, they had offered them this show and they wanted to shoot it in New York. And New York was the only market where you could see a, a show, a live show live on your television at home. It was broadcast straight from the stage. Everybody else, they used the kinescope. They had a television monitor that was receiving the show live and they'd aim a film camera at it and record that and then distribute that, print that and send it to all the affiliate stations. And then they'd rebroadcast that to the rest of the country. And it was a pretty crappy image. And so Desi and Lucy wanted to live in Los Angeles on the West Coast and they wanted to have a higher quality that everybody shared for their show. So they decided to shoot it on film. And that was more expensive, but they offered to pay for it, but they got the rights to it afterwards, which led to later on to syndication, of course. It revolutionized television, like television as it is today was kind of as envisioned by Lucy and Desi. Exactly. Well, so the syndication part, but then they decided to do a three camera show. They decided that the cast interacted better when there was a live audience there. And so Carl Freund was brought in to try to figure out how you can shoot a, a three camera show with an audience and light it mm. Where, where the audience can still see where the actors are still lit beautifully and where the, you can make quick changes with minor adjustments and stuff. And they lit the whole thing from above. Uh, they all talked to each other on headsets. They rehearsed and blocked. There was like, it would take two minutes to move a camera and be ready to do the next shot. And uh, it was all revolutionary to the point where when we were doing research and looking up articles, they'd talk about these tours that they'd give of the set and people from all over the world would come to see how they were accomplishing this new kind of uh, feat of doing this three, three camera show in front of a live audience. And to this day, that's more or less how sitcoms are done, right? For real. Did you go into the actual, I think the, the stages that they shot it on are still around, I think it was Hollywood Center Studios or? Hollywood Center is where they had the first two or three seasons, and then it went to what is now Red Studios. Yeah, which was Renmar. That was that was Desilu, right? Correct. It was then Desilu. Were you, I mean, did the original camera negatives still exist for the show? Were you able to look oh, at what the original I, stuff was shot? Yeah, we never got that far into it, but... I'm, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it was all archived and stored and now digitized and now, uh, yeah, for it would, sure. It would be interesting to see like what that stuff would look like if you transferred it or scanned it with today's technology, like what we would see that we never saw before. I mean, that's an outrageous undertaking, but yeah, it, it would, would just be fun. cool to check it out. Yeah, it really would be. And you're kind of hitting on one of the things that I think is fascinating about doing a period piece. And it's sort of the decision when you're making a period piece to are you making it feel like you're dropping a documentary camera into that period and showing it exactly the way it was warts and all? Or are you trying to evoke the way it felt or are you trying to evoke the way it feels to us today? Was there a specific approach that you or you and Aaron Sorkin came up with for like what you wanted the period look to be? Yeah, I mean, we kind of arrived at that through a combination of things by watching the television show like we all did, uh, watching movies that Desi and Lucy were in at that in, in that time period, and then watching how contemporary filmmakers approached that era and what they did. You know, for example, L.A. Confidential that Dante Spunati photographed or Carol that Ed Lockman photographed or Peggy Sue Got Married that my father photographed. You know, and then you watch those and see how they approach some of those challenges. And then you take away from from both and decide what it is that that you want to do. And then it then it evolves because uh, period pieces 
have a lot to do with the light sources that you're using, the set design, production design, the clothes that the people are wearing, the hair and makeup styles that you're wearing, and, and where you put the light in and where you put the camera. I mean, you still are obligated to entertain a, an audience that mm-hmm. grew up on Game of Thrones, right? So you, you can't be as staid as they had to be in their era in, in the 50s. You know, the audiences are so mature now that I think it's our obligation to tell that story, but tell it with uh, that it can be appreciated by a contemporary audience. And so mitigating colors, utilizing, you know, all the light sources of the era, but then cheating our own in when necessary. You know, the way mm-hmm. we designed the set and the set, we, we did a lot of research and had a lot of uh, photographs from what it was actually like on the show. And I used all those sources to uh, be part of the I Love Lucy set. Well, and some of it, I think, like, if I were to interview Nicole Kidman, which wouldn't happen, but if I were to interview Nicole Kidman about it, it's the concern about performance versus impersonation. And I feel like there's a cinematography equivalent. There is. Like, the worst trap you could get into is to make a parody of a of a period or a parody of somebody else's yeah. version of that. You know, we're saying this is what we're doing and this is our version of what that era is. And of course, you know, just by virtue of using some of the clothes and clothes colors and set pieces and sets that were designed for that or actual furniture from that era and cameras and dollies that were from that area era that you're actually looking at. We didn't actually shoot with those. You define what it is and and then start taking away from it. But I, I think as filmmakers, it's, it's you would never get an Aaron Sorkin script in 1952. Audiences wouldn't be able to keep up with it. So that in <laughs> itself is already a modern version of it. And then visually... Well, I, I, f- I feel like he's a little Preston Sturges-ish in a way. Yeah. You know, like he's, 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 he's got some DNA in, in, into the early kind of fast-talking... Uh, it's, it's If it were screwball dramas, you know. A th- thin Man series? Yeah. For real. Yeah, I know. How great would Uh, that be? (laughs) Back to your point, like not just with me and the cinematography, but that was something that Aaron said early on. You know, this is uh, we're not trying to replicate something. This is uh, our version of it. And the thing that's challenging and and something that I, I just have so much respect for Nicole taking, you know, being as brave as she is and taking the risk that she has her whole career to jump on something like this, because everybody imagines Lucy Ricardo and not the woman Lucille Ball, who's a completely different individual. You know, one's a a made up character that someone portrays and one is the the real person like all of us with with uh, all our, our faults and insecurities built in. And so. I think when people imagine uh, Lucille Ball, they only think of I Love Lucy and they only think of Lucy Ricardo and and uh, Ricky Ricardo. And that's not who they were. And this movie only touches on those characters, but actually gives you a, a, a little inside look as to who the real people were. Well, yeah, and I think that that's a, a kind of a Sorkin trademark, like I think about his uh, Steve Jobs movie. And people would be like, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't like that, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I mean, like we're obviously compressing and whatever, but also it's it's Aaron Sorkin. So we're there for the spectacle that he creates out of his dialogue. And, and, and there are very few people who I think do that, which is why I'm interested in like if there is a visual complement or a visual equivalent or how much of it are you feeling comfortable kind of sitting on somebody talking because that is the main attraction and Aaron Sorkin thing how much are you trying to spice it up with the way you light it or the way you move the camera because that stuff can also become distracting like where the where the balancing act is with all that because really what we're here to hear is his dialogue in the most interesting visual way possible going back to even a few good men anything that he's ever written no, I agree. And uh, that was one of the challenges and one of his requests at the beginning of this show was to not let him put people at a table and the camera sits there. Um, There are times when that's the most appropriate thing to do and that serves the story the best, but, and you get a character study of, of an actor, but there's other times when there was a way of incorporating other people, making shots dirty or interact, or one of the scenes that I am most fond of is a scene where Nicole and Aaliyah uh, Madeline and Lucy have a conversation in a cubbyhole kind of hallway outside of the writer's room. And it was very narrow. And at first there was like resistance, like, uh, how are they going to play this? How are we going to cover it? And I had this idea of just putting them there in profile to each other and then letting them kind of 
like almost like gun shooters size each other up and switch sides. And I talked to them about it and I didn't know how much it was going to happen or not. And it plays out beautifully. And it's the cameras. We do do coverage, but in the coverage and in the two shot, it's two people talking. There's a window behind them. They're backlit. It just wraps barely into their eyes. And the whole time it's this, this chess game with each other and they keep switching sides back and forth and it opens us up to this thing and it stays alive and it's moving and it has tension to it. And, uh, he loved it. And it was something that we had to kind of find and talk through to see if it served in his mind, if it served the story and it, and the cast and the, camera department uh, the way we blocked it uh it worked out really magical that's cool now it's sort of on the same i I hope this isn't a hacky question to ask you but on the same thing of like we have all these expectations of what lucy's supposed to look like and we know it's nicole kidman who doesn't really look exactly like you know they don't look exactly the same was there a desire or a pressure or anything on your part to light her to bring out a lucyness about her or was it like no this this is Nicole. We're going to make Nicole look great as Nicole. Yeah, it's more the latter, that this is Nicole. Uh, we're not pretending for her to be, you know, an exact match of uh, Lucille Ball. And we make her character look uh, as beautiful or whatever the scene wants to be uh, as we can. And it's that first kind of 10 to 15 minutes, is, which is the terrifying part of a movie because when you're asking people to take a leap of faith and look at someone and believe that character that if you don't have them in that first 15 minutes then you're probably not going to have the integrity of their participation throughout the whole movie and so that's kind of the genius of the way he structured it too you know you you get that offbeat you get a description of who they are by the narrators you get to see some of the cast talking around the table read beforehand And then we get to the office and we see Desi and Lucy together and they're in this kind of confrontation, but it's them against the world. And then they come to the set and they walk in, you start hearing like bits of her uh, animosity towards the director, some of the problems with the producers from Philip Morris and CBS, and then uh, the conversations with her and the writers at the table. And you start to figure out that this woman is a lot more complicated than we all thought. And she's not just the ditwit that, that giggles yeah. high and always does things wrong on set. And I think it's a very defining moment. And I think through the dialogue and through that discovery, you become immersed in her character. And rather than start picking apart whether the nose actually has the right shape or not, you start leaning in to let her tell you more about herself as you go through the movie. Well, and it, it almost, to me, feels like more probably what the real Lucy was like. You know, whenever you hear about these, you know, giant comedy stars, they get really serious and methodical and particular, just just like anyone else in the industry. Like, they, they're hard workers and they're, like, constantly digging and digging and digging. There's kind of a whole subplot about her bringing in her co-stars and reblocking a dinner scene that, that you kind of go, we, we, we keep kind of coming back to, to kind of, and I feel like it illustrates just, just how uh, relentless she was trying to... To get the show to be as great as it could be and serious about it like dead serious yeah for two reasons for one because she was has that much integrity and wanted the shows to be as funny as they could and she was a comedic genius and couldn't handle things not being right or putting things off and also she's protecting the 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 core of her relationship the dream that she always had it only exists in that little set and she doesn't want to let go of that and she's uh dying to make that show last forever so that she can keep enjoying this little fairy tale that she made another thing that i thought was interesting and you know when i see movies that are like period pieces you brought up la confidential which is like a very exterior movie there's so much happening outside this is a movie where i feel like very little is happening outside and when it is it is like right outside the studio uh correct me if i'm wrong i don't recall at like a single vista of like hollywood boulevard it was a very internal, I don't want to say chamber piece kind of movie, but it felt it was very interior. Was that a conscious choice on, on everyone's part? I mean, obviously you could have shot whatever you wanted. What was the thinking behind that? I, I think that it was as big as Aaron wanted it to be. And we had enough diversity in locations to tell the story. I don't think he wanted it overly complicated as, their li- as this week is one week in their lives and it's pretty confined and he didn't want to get 
too much going on to lose perspective of, of the internal dramas that they're all having to question themselves about. You know, we did shoot up on Mulholland Drive for when they meet in the morning. Oh, that's a gorgeous scene, too. That's really, Pretty really Pretty shot, and we did get on, you know, Ciro's was uh, the uh, Queen's Ballroom on the Queen Mary. And then um, the, the rest of it was just uh, a couple locations. We, we did go out for... The, the, their house and the pool scene and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it was just uh, an intimate movie. With, with That's the thing. thing. Intimate's the perfect description, too. Like, that, even that scene on Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. like, what? it's beautiful. It's big cinema. It's, it's gorgeous. But, uh, like, again, you know, going back to L.A., I, when, I, when I think about this period in L.A., L.A. Confidential is probably, like, one of the best modern movie depictions of it that I've ever seen in terms of just seeing what the whole city was like and what it would be like if you were just walking down a regular city street and this movie is like all kind of locked into the glamour uh the the bubble that these people live in exactly now since you grew up in the business and your father and grandfather were both in the business did you ever cross paths or did your anyone in your family cross paths with any of the people that that are being fictionalized in this movie yeah, both my grandfather and my father worked in and around the I Love Lucy, really? Desi and Lucille. My grandfather certainly photographed them in the day. And my dad, we had a guy na- uh, named Charlie Sodano who had been Clint Eastwood's key grip for 30 movies. And he was our historical representative. And he had actually worked on uh, I Love Lucy as a young grip. And so he kept saying that my dad was uh, an operator on the show, but he's got that wrong. If anything, he day played as a camera assistant now and then, but he was too young to be an operator at that point during during that show. But your dad worked on I Love Lucy. I'm not sure about that. That's what he told me. Uh, uh, I don't recall that, although I recall other times and other, you know, he was on Perry Mason and you, there was a TV show that they shot in Long Beach called U-Boat 571, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was the first on Dennis the Menace and uh, the DP got sick one day and a young guy came in to fill in for the day named Conrad Hall. And Conrad, (laughs) Conrad met my dad and they went off and did, you know, tell him Willie boy was here, Harper in cold blood, Butch Cassidy, Sundance kid, hell in the Pacific that, you know, they, they, they became friends after that and they went off and tore off. And then my dad started shooting after that. That's amazing. Well, it's just interesting, you know, because like I Love Lucy is a long time ago, but not so long that there wouldn't still be some people around who, who remember it. Uh, so it's it's interesting to kind of have a connection to that piece of history. Well, um, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations yeah. for the film. Uh, this is going to get all, all kinds of Oscar notices, I'm sure. I hope uh, so. In, Fingers including crossed. Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it, I think it's just amazing work, and I, I love I love your work, and I love Aaron Sorkin's work. So thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. So that was uh, Jeff Cronenworth, and I uh, can't wait to bring him back on to talk about the next thing. I just, uh, I, I love the way he thinks, and uh, I told him this after we uh, got done recording, that Fight Club is like one of my comfort food movies. I, I just returned to it, and like two weeks ago, I watched it on Amazon Prime. Really holds up. Looks amazing. You always forget, uh, or I shouldn't say you, I always forget that not only was his father a famous cinematographer, his grandfather won an Oscar. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know the first rule about Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got you got to watch Fight Club all the time. That's the first rule, actually. Fight Club, yeah, yeah. yeah I, uh, one of one of my personal favorites as, as well. It's one of the few movies you and I kind of categorically agree about. Yeah, Miller's Crossing, Fight Club. We got two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got uh, a double sh- feature, man. The Shining, three. We got oh, three. Three. Okay. three, three for three. Not not too bad. All right, so <laughs> you know what time it is, Ben? I do, I do. It is time to pay them bills. Uh, and pay them we shall. Uh, today we're going to thank our returning sponsor, Aerie. Yeah, Aerie, thanks so much for uh, sponsoring us uh, once again. I want to talk about Aerie's fancy new signature zooms, which are just now starting to, to ship. It's a collection, a set of several zooms uh, from the signature line. They have the LPL mount, which is the update of the PL mount, and 
they're relatively lightweight and super high performance. And there's four of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I I would invite people and we're going to put a link in the show notes to go check out the uh, airy.com forward slash EN slash cinema cameras, cinema lenses, airy signature zoom lenses page, which actually has links to a lot of great information, including some samples of uh, different videos that were shot with uh, these lenses. They're on YouTube and they're particularly beautiful. And I think it's absolutely worth uh, taking a look at. There's one here that's a a test that was posted uh, back in June that was shot in Kyoto. It's awesome. There's uh, another one that was shot in Paris, uh, also posted in June. Sort of throughout the year, there's been little bits of teasing bits of these uh, lenses, sample footage being posted, and they're all awesome. And if you were kind of considering high performance, full frame LPL mount zoom lenses, give us a call over at Hot Red Cameras. We can we can certainly help you out with these. Yeah, I was about to ask, like if someone was in the metro Los Angeles area and wanted to put their hands on one, stick it on a camera, look at a monitor, like would you would you have an ability to do that at the moment? We can make that happen. Just give us a call. We can figure out how, how to do it. Like I said, actually, there's, there's there's four different signature zooms. There's a wide 16 to 32, a 24 to 75, a 45 to 135, and a 65 to 300. And there is also, for those who really want to get crazy, an extender that you can throw on that 65 to 300, which uh, makes it even longer. It turns it Whoa. into um, a real bad mamma jamma, as they say. I, I even just like 65 to 300. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, so yeah, uh, hit us up. Uh, that it. In case you're curious, it turns it into a 110 to 510 millimeter lens, which is wow. incredible. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. And now, short ends. So Ben, I think it is our famed short end time of the show. What is your short end this week? Uh, my short end is something that comes from my personal experience, and it is a tool that I think people will dig. So a few weeks ago, I shot a project, my second shoot since the pandemic started. My first was maybe a month earlier. And it's a bunch of interviews, uh, a series of interviews. But on the day that we were filming, we, we were doing them all in one day. One of the uh, interview subjects had laryngitis and couldn't come to the shoot. Oh, no. Yeah. So, oh, no. So we had like a, an emergency uh, meeting with the producer and the client and kind of discussed it. And it was like, OK, you know, we live in the era of Zoom. We can get away with Zoom. Zoom will be OK. And they were like, yeah, it's less yeah. than I Because like they were not. Yeah, Zoom sounds terrible. Though. It looks and sounds like, you know, it. I mean, it looks it looks and sounds we're used to the way it looks and sounds, but it isn't ideal for a project where like, you know, we actually brought out the big guns. George Foyt came out. We had the Varicam. Uh, we had seamless paper backgrounds, you know, like we were Whoa. doing it right. And uh, yeah, yeah, it looked, it, you know, stuff stuff looked really great, but we weren't going to be able to get this one interview. And in order to bring everybody back out, I don't personally believe in hiring people for a half day. I think that's kind of a crappy thing because they're not going to be able to go get another half day's worth of work that, hey, I can book you. For, I, can, I can't work that day uh, in the morning, but I'll be a, I'll be free after one. So to <laughs> yeah, me, and, ha- and how many people out there are working that first half day going like, oh, you know what? We got to wrap it up. My second half day is about to start now. Across Exactly. Town. You can't like, you can't do that. <laughs> Bye. Uh, the, only t- the only time I've ever I ever uh, will hire someone for half day if it's like we are truly only going to need you for an hour. Yeah. And and like, you know, we're going to come in, we're going to bust out this interview, then we're going to leave. That's we only need you for maximum an hour and a half. But anyway, uh, even if we did that, they didn't have it in their budget to bring back the crew. And it was uh, I won't say where, but it was kind of a long drive for most Angelinos to get to where it was. So I don't know why I'm being cagey about where it was, but uh, I'll let it be mysterious <laughs> anyway. So uh, so we did the interview last Temple week. Temple City. <laughs> we, we did the interview last week. And we were able to, instead of doing it on Zoom, uh, the person we were doing the interview had a selfie stick. So they used that to kind of prop up their their iPhone and they and used the rear facing camera. And we got an OK looking interview that doesn't look as good as the other stuff, but doesn't look embarrassingly awful and will work fine for this website. We got the interview OK, but the sound was pure dog shit. Ooh, because Zoom because it, yeah. it was in an echo it wasn't zoom it was just your phone so oh, okay so the person's gotcha. like five six feet away and they're in an echoey room and there's just not much you can do with it so this is a long setup oh my god but so <laughs> i found a product called descript d-e-s-c-r-i-p-t and tested it out it's basically designed to do transcripts and to help people do podcasts 
to record podcasts remotely, but they have a function inside of it called Studio Sound, and it is AI-driven. So like Premiere has the AI-driven re-editing of music for you and the AI-driven transcripts. This is yet another AI-driven thing where it will add wavelengths of sound that are excluded from your recording. So let's say that you were recording in Zoom and it cuts you off at a certain frequency. It'll use AI to determine what frequencies above or below that should be there and it will add them back in. It removes reverb, it EQs. And so I took this, you know, uh, the raw footage of the interview is probably 35, 40 minutes, dropped it in there, took a few hours for it to go through it. And I think it might've been getting hung up on the fact that my audio through her phone, you know, like through her computer sounded even worse and it was trying to correct that. And so my audio is just like garbled robot sounding stuff. Her audio, really awesome. I ran the whole thing through it and it's like, it got rid of the reverb. It got rid of, there was just kind of like a, just kind of a crappy high pitchedness about the whole thing that I had tried to EQ out. And so, you know, I, I had gone through and uh, using Premiere and all of the sound repair stuff that's in there and, you know, denoiser and deesser and parametric EQ and all kinds of crap to just try and make it sound like it wasn't. And I was able to take the curse off of it a little bit, but it still mm. sounded like lousy phone audio. Once, mm. uh, once Descript was done with it, without using any of those filters, it sounded not as good as if you had a Sennheiser 416 right in her face, but it sounded so that whoever's watching this isn't going to be like, oh, that sounds like crap. I, it won't look or sound as good as the other stuff, but it won't look or sound embarrassing. How's that? Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. So check it out. It's Descript and it's in beta, but it worked totally fine. And uh, it's a service that you do pay for. There are paid tiers of it, but this utility is free to use. So it didn't cost me anything to try it. And uh, I've been in situations where things like Isotope RX, which is a huge audio fixum program, uh, is the only thing that could uh, turn lousy audio into something usable. But I even found a comparison online that wasn't done by Descript where they ran three or four different kinds of uh, algorithms to repair audio and Descript did the best job out of all of them. That sounds awesome. I, I, I will totally try that. I almost feel like we should start using it for our Zoom interviews just because it makes the interview sound better. I think that's a great idea. We can give it a shot. Yeah. So, Ilya, what is your short end this week? My short end this week is the TV series Made. Are you familiar with Made, M-A-I-D, on Netflix? I have not seen it. It's a it's a mini series, and I really like it. Uh, it's gorgeous, and I definitely would like to get Q in here to talk about it because she actually directs one of the episodes. But it's uh it stars Margaret Qualley, and I think I'm pronouncing it cor- correctly. It could be Qualley, but uh, that is actually the real life daughter of Andy McDowell. And Margaret's had an incredible career uh, before Made, and she was in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She was in Fosse Verdon. Uh, she's been around for a while, and this is the first time she's ever acted with her real life mother and there is more than one occasion where you go like wow she looks a lot like her mom especially if she smiles or looks in a certain way but it's a great drama and there's sort of a a dark funny bent to the whole thing and if you're looking for something to watch and it feels like something that you may have seen before but i assure you it's not exactly like anything you've seen before uh made is totally worth watching and uh, i think you'd enjoy it very much it is a drama but like i said it's got this sort of like dark edge and it deals with a lot of uh, social issues and commentary but without being preachy and just kind of lets the whole thing play play out and uh it's totally worth watching if you if you want something uh dramatic made m-a-i-d i'll check it out so yeah, nothing technical for me this week. It was oh uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, no I uh, no no Mary Lynn's miss this year. <laughs> no, not not this. I I could have gone down that path. There's a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about, but uh, I really enjoyed Made. It is binge worthy. I would say you oh, can nice. you could binge it. Yeah, you can watch the whole Excellent. thing on Netflix. Yeah, it's good. All right, so Ben, where can people find you if they if they want to connect with you outside of this show? Where where do they go? Well, I mean, I keep saying the best place to find me is on Facebook in the group Needs a Werewolf, which really taken off. Man, oh man, I'm so excited about how Needs a Werewolf is really, it's got legs. I didn't, I didn't think it, I didn't think it was going to last that long. How many people are in in there now? It's like 520 or something. Like, you know, for my stupid idea of like rewriting movie synopses to include werewolves to make them more interesting or, you know, even werewolf synopses and adding more werewolves. 
the probably the best place to find me though is benrockonline.com where you will find links to my work and lots of other stuff all my social media links and stuff are on there several people have contacted me uh, via linkedin or twitter or whatever you know knock yourself out if you have a question i'm here for you i'm here to serve how about you Ilya? where can people find you uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras. And actually, someone did find me yesterday. Uh, oh, no. Not yesterday. Sorry. On Friday over at Hot Red Cameras. No, they called. Mm. And I was like, hey, I'm sorry. We're actually having a problem with our phone system. Can you please give me your number and I'll just have someone call you back? And they go, OK, sure. No problem. Here's the information. They went, is this Ilya? And I was like, <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, it is. It's like, I listen to the podcast. I was like, oh, great. Thanks for listening. But really, uh, I got to have someone call you back because we have a phone problem right now. And thankfully today, phone problem is solved. It just took a little weekend work. But yeah, now now phones back to full strength. That was a uh, uh, all I'll say is damn you Spectrum Internet. Oh, they, man. They were, they, yeah, they were the ones responsible. A little touch jokes. and go there. Well, it's cool, though, that, uh, yeah, people are excited when they hear your voice. I remember one time I was hanging out with Janelle, who's been on our show, Janelle Riley, and Jeff Goldsmith, who at the time was the editor-in-chief at Creative Screenwriting, and he hosts the Q&A podcast, Mm. which at the time was just the Creative Screenwriting podcast, but I listened to it religiously, and talking to him was so weird because I was just used to hearing his voice inside my head all the time. That's right. In in your headphones. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel uh, you. I, I feel you, uh, podcast listeners, when you meet us in person and you're like, oh, my God, that's that voice that I hear all the time. Yes, I, I was slightly taken off guard, but in a good way. I, I was completely disarmed. It, it was wonderful. I, I appreciate uh, someone, you know, instantly recognizing my voice and saying hello. It was great. That's so. very cool. All right, Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we thank for this episode? Well, first off, Alana Cody, who uh, in our Oscar season is kicking all the ass and getting us some just amazing interviews. Uh, obviously, we, we had Jeff Cronwith on, but we have we have some other ones coming up real soon that I'm extraordinarily excited about. And I'll, we'll talk about more when those come up. Uh, we should thank her. We should thank Kay's Alatrachi, who created every scrap of music that you've heard in this and is also uh, directing, doing VFX and color correction and basically doesn't need any of us. But uh, you can check <laughs> him out true. at musicbykays.com <laughs> and, uh, you know, send him a nice message. Uh, hire him to score or color correct or do VFX or direct your next project. And let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, editing, and, you know, I probably made life a little bit harder on him this Oof. week. But, so uh, sorry, but ben, ben. Yeah, ben, ben is putting it together, making us sound slightly more coherent than probably the sound effects is that I was making. I want to say Ben it. Katz was in the Needs a Werewolf group or maybe oh, really? or at least liked something in it. Alana is in there a lot. So, wow. Yeah. God, you got to get in, is... you got to get into the Needs a Werewolf group, man. <laughs> I, I have to spend more than like five minutes on Facebook then I think to do that. You know, <laughs> so. I, I, I admire people who can not be on Facebook at all. I think it's, I'm, tr- uh, I'm, I'm trying hard. It's a I'm great gift hard. you can give yourself is to stay <laughs> out of Facebook. But if you have to go on Facebook, please check out needs a werewolf. And, you know, I want to invite everyone to go visit uh, the Cam Noir website, camnoir.com. That's where all our show notes are, and that's where all kinds of great information is. Alana works really hard to put together these descriptions, and she tags things, and our SEO is is really taking off. If you actually want to look something up, we do have sort of a search box on there, and you can find basically whatever you want for, through our history of nearly 200 episodes of this show. Oof, we're coming up on 200. What what should we do for our 200th episode, Ilya? I don't know. Cupcakes? What, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to do for our 200th episode? I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, <laughs> listen to the first episode over. Ooh, that would be terrible. Oh, I'd be so... You, you wanted fingernails on a blackboard. I'm, I'm like, guessing oh, that... Oh, man, the... we didn't know... Well, it's it, 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 Jason Wingrove. Cool guy. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about you and me, though. Yeah, Hearing yeah, no. ourselves talk, talk about this is probably like... A little bit deer in the headlights. Yeah, we weren't <laughs> quite sure. But, you know, I always say podcast is kind of a ready, fire, aim art form. So <laughs> agreed. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, we should probably wrap it up for this week. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. And we will see you next week. Or you'll hear us. One of those things. <laughs> this has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.